So we talked about buffets and community time if, if you weren't here, um, but I just want to know from my personal knowledge, um, who are my buffet people? How many of you would say, I love buffet? I love a buffet. Absolutely. Absolutely. Man, man growing up for me, loved buffets. I didn't care about the quality of it. I cared about the quantity of it. How much food can I consume and stuff in my relatively small kid, 12-year-old body? Like me and my brother used to joke that when we went to Golden Corral while we were being charged the kid's price, man, they lost money on us because we would just put it away. Uh, we'd also end up, you know, feeling sick afterwards, but, I mean, it tasted good while it happened. Um, how many of y'all are like, you know, buffets are gross. They're, they're germs, nasty. Okay, some of y'all, I just want to encourage some of y'all with this. Um, what doesn't kill you does make you stronger. I mean, when you think about how many people have touched those serving handles without using hand sanitizer, and then you don't use hand sanitizer in your hands, like all the germs you're consuming, it's just practice for your immune system, right? So, I mean, so maybe that's some of y'all. Um, <clears throat> how many of y'all are just like, you know, I just want to pay for, I would pay for a nice sit-down meal, okay? So I, like, I got, I'm, I'm about 60% of the way there, like, like the buffet force still has a strong pull for me, um, but I have learned the value of on a date, it's usually not best to end where you feel like you're just doubled over and your stomach is about to pop, right? Because, I mean, it just makes for a sad end to date night, right? Um, so, and, and plus, if you like eat half of it and take it home, then you get more the next day, and it's just double the fun, right? So, so we all, but, but here's the thing, here's the thing. Um, I will say this, maybe this would be controversial, I don't know, but um, man, can you really be a good Christian and, and not love a potluck at church? Right, right, right. I mean, I mean, I don't know if we've ever done a potluck, but 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 there, 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 there's something nice about buffets, even if you're not really into them. Um, and I was actually discussing this with one of the folks I was doing my community time with. There, there is this these options for people, right? Like you, like if you're at a Southern Baptist potluck, like you don't have to have you know Granny Grace's like mystery meat casserole if that's really not your thing. You can just kindly bypass that, and you can go for the fried chicken. And, and if you're into the mystery meat casserole, that's that's fine, whatever. Um, but but but. There's kind of something for everybody. You know, if you go to Golden Corral, you can have their cheap pizza, which I, I still think is kind of okay, to be honest. Um, or you can get, or if you want a salad, the weirdest thing, honestly, if you're at a buffet, I used to do this, then I realized it was pointless, is if you start your buffet with a salad, like, why would you do that? Like, why would you go to a pizza buffet and have a salad and then eat 30 pieces of pizza? Like, like the salad, it canceled out the salad. So, like, I, I finally learned, like, like, don't do the salad. Just jump into the pizza. You're a lot happier. Um, it, it's just true. So, but the thing about buffets is, man, you have options, right? Like, you can get what you want. Everybody's happy. And that's really the appeal of it. Um, and that really kind of works from, like, a social standpoint, right? It's not controversial. It's not really a pain. It, it just works. Where, where it doesn't work is from a spiritual standpoint. And here's what I mean by that. In our culture, in, in today, in, 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 I guess it's the 21st century, um, the way we tend to look at religions is, it's as if, is as if they're all in a buffet line. You, you got Jesus here, and you got Islam here, and Hinduism, and then kind of this like quasi-faith where you kind of have a general belief in God, and maybe halfway Jesus, but not really. Um, and then you kind of have the agnostic thing in there. And there's all these different faiths, and it's like, well, well, well I can just pick one. And other people can pick one, kind of like that little coexist bumper sticker, right? Like I can be Judaism or Islam or Christianity or just kind of a general belief in God. And as long as I can pick one, man, I can be happy. Everybody can be happy. You know, kumbaya, yay, rainbows and sunshine and unicorns and Skittles. And everybody's happy, right? Now, it sounds really appealing, right? And see, here's the interesting thing. 
it's even really appealing for a lot of people who claim the name of Jesus. Because according to a 2021 study, and if this is true, then it probably even applies to some of you guys in this room, 70% of professing Christians don't believe Jesus is the only way to heaven. They don't believe he's the only way. 70% would say, yeah, Jesus is a way to heaven, but, but as long as you're really sincere in your faith, as long as you try to be a really good person, as long as you have a general belief in God, then you're okay. And what it kind of reduces down to is an idea that goes like this. Jesus is a nice option. I mean, that whole dying on the cross thing, that's so, 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 so kind of him, the rising from the dead thing is, is neat. But, but he's a nice option. But here's the problem with that. Jesus actually didn't give us that as an option. Because Jesus said this, John 14, 6, and Pastor Mark read this earlier. <clears throat> this is what Jesus said. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so while, while it might be, might be sociologically acceptable to have a coexist bumper sticker or, or to have this idea of, well, Jesus is a really nice option as long as I'm sincere. Like, like I don't have to go and try to you know, share Jesus with anybody and there's just no controversy in my life. Well, while that's a very comfortable sounding option, the problem with that is this. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Jesus never gave us the option of calling him an option when he defined himself as the only option. And see, that's so important to understand because, like, Pastor Dylan didn't say Jesus is the only way. The, the church didn't say Jesus is the only way. No, Jesus himself said, no, I am the way. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, there can be some pushback in that, and some of that pushback sounds really good, almost even theological. Like, well, Pastor Dylan, like, ever since the cross, aren't we all under grace we're all under grace, there's no law. So, so Jesus actually already covered all that, and it sounds really, really good, and it's very appealing because it's not controversial. But can I tell you this? If what you're drawn to creates absolutely zero tension for your life and never requires you to take, make any sort of stand, like it's probably not the right thing. Like, if you're following a path where it's always comfortable, it's always convenient, that you never have to do anything that causes tension with somebody else, it's probably not the right thing. And Jesus didn't give us the option of saying, well, he's a nice option, but he's not the option. No, Jesus defined himself as the only option. And so we get that not just from this passage in John, but from John chapter 6. So just some background to John 6. Um, earlier in this chapter, Jesus has been preaching to a crowd of, as John records, 5,000 men, which means there was probably more like fifteen to 20,000 people there. They're all super hungry, and nobody prepared the Sunday afternoon potluck is what happened. And so, and so they need food. And Jesus is like, I'm going to take care of it. He gets a little boy's Lunchables with some bread and some fish, miraculously feeds fifteen to 20,000 people. And so like, like, like good Baptists, right? Like this attracts them. 
In fact, like most Southern Christians, right? Like we're attracted to food, especially in mass quantities. Can, can we just be honest about that? Like, like, like we really are. And so verse 25 of John chapter 6 is where we pick up the story. It says, when they found him on the other side of the lake, these people were so amazed at the food that Jesus gave them. They're like, we want more of that. They literally travel around a whole lake, a very large lake overnight because they're like, well, that bread tasted really good. That fish was amazing. And so they go all the way to the other side of the lake, and they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus just cuts right to the chase here. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed. In other words, you're not here for the miracle, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. In other words, I fed you really good, and you're like, that was really fun. Can, can we do that again? But then he goes on to say this. He says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. So what Jesus says here is, hey, you guys are obsessed with this temporary thing, food, and you just don't need to be obsessed with that. And maybe it's food for you. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your career. Teenagers, preteens, maybe it's, maybe it's your popularity, maybe it's your friends, maybe it's the sport that you're involved in. Maybe it's relationships. I don't know what it is, but Jesus' word to us would be, don't be so obsessed with these things that are not going to last forever. Don't be obsessed with these things that are going to be here today and gone tomorrow. You need to have your focus set on the things that lead to eternal life. And so they ask the question, verse 28, what must we do to do the works that God requires? So they're like, okay, what does God want from us? Okay, that's really interesting. Okay, we get it. Don't focus on the temporary, focus on the eternal. We're like, what does that require? What does God require of us to do that? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So, so here's what we get there immediately. We get this idea that what God requires is for people to believe in Jesus. God requires that. Not just a generic belief in God, not just some general sense of trying to do good, but the thing that God requires is belief in Jesus. Now, it begs the question, what do we mean by belief here? Well, well there's a couple of different ideas. But the idea of belief carries this idea of trust. It's this idea of putting your weight on something. For instance, every single one of y'all are doing that right now with the chair that you're sitting in. You're trusting that that chair is put together good enough to where it is not going to collapse. Right? Yes, that's where we're doing that. Some of y'all are wrongly putting your trust in a football team this afternoon that plays in Dallas, which is a terrible team. Some of y'all wrongly put your trust in North Carolina State right last night. I did not, by the way. I fully expected to lose. It's just better as a state fan. You expect the worst, and then when that happens, it's like, oh, wow, a miracle. But some of y'all, or some of us rather, man, we're trusting in maybe our bank account, or we're trusting in, in maybe our looks. Maybe we're trusting in our business savvy. Maybe we're trusting in our 401K. Maybe we're trusting in our intelligence, our grades, to get us to where we need to go. And that's and, and in some case, man, that's all fine and good, but is there weight being placed in Jesus 
to make you right with God? Or are you placing your weight in maybe your good works to make you right with God? Are you placing weight in your effort to make you right with God? Are you placing weight in maybe the sincerity of of what you perceive as your own belief to make you right with God? Or is your weight on Jesus? That's the question. So it carries this idea of trust, but but it also carries this idea of, of orienting towards relationship. Because the reality is, like, this idea of trust, really trusting somebody, you have to have a relationship with them, right? Like, I didn't really trust my wife until I really got to know her, right? And most of us, we, we don't automatically trust people. Like, oftentimes, that has to be earned and developed over the course of relationship. And so right here with this idea of belief, this idea of trust, it orients us towards relationship. And so the way you can think about this is the thing that God requires to have eternal life is trust in Jesus. It's belief in Jesus. It's not just a general belief in God. It's not just trying to do good things. It is specifically belief in Jesus. And the result is eternal life. Verse 40, Jesus, we kind of skip ahead in the conversation a little bit. And Jesus says, for my Father's will. By the way, how many of y'all have ever wanted to know what God's will is for your life? Come on. Come on. We can be honest. Every single person in the room, and I'm, I'm an introvert, and I'm raising my hand, guys. So, so I get it. Right? It's scary, whatever. When you see in the Bible that it says something like "for my Father's will" or "God's will," like you don't have to pray about that. You don't have to wonder about that. It's just, man, th- this is exactly what God wants. What does God want? Jesus says, spells it out. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. In other words, the way you're made right with God, the way you're saved, the way you have eternal life, it's only Jesus. It's nobody else. It's no other religion. It has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with your effort. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. And see, here's what I find kind of fascinating. Like, it's taken Christianity around two millennia, millennium, I don't remember which one's singular, which one's plural. It's taken over 2,000 years. We'll just cut the 64-cent word. Right? It's taken Christianity 2,000 years ago to try to come to the conclusion that, well, maybe maybe Jesus didn't actually mean that. But I'm just going to be honest. Like, when that's our thought process... That, that, that is so incredibly arrogant when you consider that the people who walked with Jesus, like they got this. Like, like Acts chapter 4, 12, um, I read it earlier, but, but this is like the message that the disciples, this is like weeks after Jesus has died on the cross, come back to life and gone up to heaven. They say this, Acts 4, 12, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. The disciples didn't miss it. They didn't confuse it. Like, they understood Jesus was saying very clearly, he's the only way to be saved. He's the only way, and that's it. And I know the pushback is, well, man, that just seems so exclusive. And it seems so intolerant. And I'm not even sure I want a God who would make that kind of claim. 
That's the kind of thinking that, that often comes up, especially in a process called deconstruction, which we've talked about, which just for our purposes of conversation, it's just this idea of reevaluating your faith. And I get the whole idea of man, exclusive. It feels, it feels bad, especially in a culture that prizes itself on tolerance. But, um, but let's, let's step back and evaluate this, this for just a second. Is it exclusive in the sense that Jesus is the only way? Yes. But it's also actually the, the only faith in the whole world that's actually completely inclusive. You might say, what do you mean by that? John 6, 47, Jesus said this, Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I want you to notice this. This is so important. Jesus didn't put any qualifiers on who can believe. No qualifiers at all. Which means anyone regardless of your story, regardless of your background, regardless of where you've been, regardless of who you are, anyone, anywhere can come to faith in Christ and be saved. Literally no other faith or no other religious option actually offers that, at least in a way that actually squares with our sense of justice. Because here's the way this can kind of work out. Every other faith boils down to basically this. Be a good person. Sort of makes sense, right? But here's the problem with that. Who defines good? In, in that situation, if that's your argument, well, I just need to be a good person. Who defines good? Well, isn't it, isn't it you? And if you're defining yourself, because that's what often what we do, right? When we say, I'm a good person, well, like, like, what, what, like, like we, we hold ourselves as the standards, right? But you know when you do that, when, when, when we say, well, I'm a, when I say I'm a good person or you say I'm a good person, automatically we have to look down our nose at everybody else and judge them. And so when you say I'm a good person, it's actually one of the most judgmental statements you can ever make because you've got to look down your nose at other people and be like, and they're not. So that doesn't sound very inclusive, does it, right? Because also when we do that, we also render judgment on, on certain people who, who can't be saved, right? Because if I'm a good person, then I have to look at somebody else and say they're not a bad person. And in today's culture where cancel culture is so popular, don't we often look at people who made mistakes when they were teenagers and they're like, oh, they made a mistake as a teenager. And I know it's been 75 years since they were a teenager, but they're bad, 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 and they have to be canceled. They're done. Isn't that the way it works out? No grace, no mercy, no compassion, no chance for redemption. Just judgment. And that feels good if you feel like you're a good person, if you're kind of thinking about that, but, but it honestly makes you judgmental. That's a problem. because none of, How many of y'all want to be labeled judgmental? Want to be labeled judgmental? How many of y'all want to be labeled that? Nobody. Nobody wants to be labeled that. We don't want to be labeled as open-minded, tolerant, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's part of the problem. The other problem is this. When it's like, well, I've just got to be a good person. Man, that puts the weight completely on you. Completely on you. And you know what I've learned, particularly since becoming a dad, um, I'm not a very good dad. Kids will bring that out of you. And so if you're putting all the weight on you <clears throat> to be a good person, Man, that's soul-crushing. It's absolutely soul-crushing. Some of y'all know that because you grew up 
in religious traditions, even maybe so-called Christian traditions, where the emphasis was entirely on what you do. And if you made a mistake, if you stepped out of bounds, if you missed a Sunday, then bang, God was ticked off with you. That wasn't life-giving. But when we try to get into this place where, oh, it's about being good, then man, that's the sort of soul-crushing weight we end up putting ourselves under. So what some people end up doing is, is they look at the cross and they're like, well, <clears throat> Jesus' death, his resurrection, like, like that paid for everything. Now everybody goes to heaven. The problem with that is that just doesn't square with any sense of justice, does it? Because if that's kind of where you land in this <clears throat> kind of universalist sort of camp, <clears throat> what you're really saying is somebody like Adolf Hitler or Timothy McVeigh or Dylan Roof they did whatever they did. Osama bin Laden did whatever he did. And they had to show no remorse, no regret, no repentance, no heart change. And guess what? They could do all the horrible things they did and they still go to heaven. Does that sound right to you guys? Of course it doesn't. And so that whole universalist thing, it doesn't actually make sense. But here's the scandal of Christianity. If bin Laden or Ruth or McVeigh or Hitler, if before they died, recognize I've sinned before God, I'm wrong, I need to repent of my sin and trust Jesus. Guess what? They could be saved. No, no other faith in the world allows that because they've done way too many bad things. That's the scandal of Christianity. It is exclusive in that Jesus is the only, only way, but it is inclusive in that no matter what your story is, no matter what your background is, no matter where you've been, anybody, anywhere, as long as you still have breath in your lungs, can be saved. The one who believes has eternal life, not because of what they do, but because of Jesus Christ. Jesus continues the conversation here in verse 48, and I'm just going to be honest and open. Some of this will sound really confusing, but we're going to jump into it, and we'll explain it. Jesus says this, verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors, he's talking to a Jewish audience here. He's talking to them about the time where God delivered the Jewish people from slavery in Egypt and fed them miraculously with bread from heaven. He says, your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here's the bread, referring to himself, that comes down from heaven, which anyone, again, anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And that confuses the Jews, and it would confuse us. The Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're like, is Jesus calling us to be cannibals? In fact, believe it or not, this was actually one of the knocks on Christianity in, 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 the, early, in the time of the Roman Empire. Was they, they talked about this thing called communion, which, which represents the flesh of Jesus, the body of Jesus, and the blood of Jesus. And they're like, it sounds cannibalistic. This feels dangerous. Because I don't know about you, but I don't want to live next door to Hannibal Lecter. You know what I mean? So what is Jesus talking about here? Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day, for my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Now, that sounds really, really strange. Can we just agree with that? Like, it sounds strange, really weird. But one thing we have to understand, and Jesus is going to make this clear in a moment, is that He's not speaking literally here. He's speaking metaphorically. 
He's not speaking in the sense of, well, like you have to eat, literally eat me and literally eat, drink me. No, when he says flesh and blood, he's referring to the totality of himself. What he's saying is, just like if you, you have to eat bread to live, you have to place your trust in me. You have to accept me, all of me, in order to live spiritually. It's metaphorical. It's not literal. And so he goes on to say here, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, watch this, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus is not talking literally here. He's talking metaphorically. He's using himself as a symbol. He, just like bread feeds people, Jesus himself gives us eternal life. That's the idea. And I know some of you guys, maybe you're from a Catholic background, and, and it was taught that, you know, when, when you go to take communion, the bread literally becomes the body of Jesus. The blood literally, or the wine literally becomes the blood of Jesus. And we can have that discussion, but, but, but you can't get that from this text because Jesus is not speaking in a literal sense. He's speaking in a spiritual sense that, hey, if you want to have eternal life, you have to accept me. You have to accept all of me, the totality of who I am, fully God, fully Holy man, perfect, sinless, the Savior of the world, and the only way. That's what Jesus is getting at here. It's not based on what you do. It's not based on your efforts. It's not based on the sincerity of your belief. It's not a generic belief in God. It is in Jesus and Jesus alone that we have eternal life. And there's one phrase in here that he uses here that, that, that gets us to this relational idea. Back in verse 56 where he says, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. That's the concept of relationship again. Another translation may use the term abide. What is it talking about? Relationship, relationship, relationship. It has nothing to do with religious acts or religious ceremonies. It is all about relationship with Jesus. And that's the dividing line. And this trips us up, right? Because at the end of the day, we kind of prefer for it to be about our efforts, right? Because we can measure that. I can measure what I give. I can measure how I treat people to some extent anyway. I, I can measure whether I show up to church or take communion. Or I can measure whether I read the Bible and pray. But Jesus says it is not about what you do. It is completely, totally all about him. And this causes a problem with his audience. Verse 60, watch this. It says on hearing this, many of his disciples, all these people who have been following him around, said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Because they were raised in a Jewish culture that made it all about keeping the law, keeping what the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, keeping every single thing they laid out. And if you do all that stuff right, then God accepts you. But Jesus takes that system and completely turns it on its head and says, no, it is not about keeping the rules of the system. It is not about your effort. And it's not even about the sincerity of your belief. It is about whether or not your faith, your belief, your trust is in me. It is about whether or not you have a relationship with me. That's the line. And that bothers us, doesn't it? Because watch, watch verse 61. It says, aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Here's what I think about when I think about offended. 
Um, some years ago, I forget how many years ago, but, but me and my wife went to the fair, which, by the way, state fair is this month. Glory to God for funnel cakes and turkey legs, kettle corn, way too many calories. Y'all like, who likes the fair? Who likes the fair? Likes the fair? Okay, for those of y'all that don't, I will pray for the Lord to, to enlighten you so you can know the joy of overly fried, greasy foods that make you feel amazing for a moment then just make you feel kind of like cruddy the rest of the day. But it's still, it's still fun, right? It's still fun. It's still fun. Um, but a few years ago, my wife and I are at the fair, and we're in the sample line for the hush puppies. And I didn't know that I was getting in the middle of the line because there was like an eight-foot gap between one person and another. And so I just got in it. And this guy, like, chewed me out. He chewed me out over a freaking hush puppy that was like that big. And he just put me in a sour mood. I was like, I don't even, I, don't even, I wish I hadn't even come now. I wish I didn't even go. Like, 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 like if I'd known I was going to get chewed out over a free hush puppy, like, it, it, it just really ticked me off. And so that's why I think of when I think of offended. Um, but sometimes we get offended at Jesus, right? When he lays something out that we're like, I, I, I don't like that. And by the way, let me just tell you this. If you follow Jesus long enough or closely enough, there will be plenty of times where he's like, you need to hear something that you just don't want to hear. And you're like, I don't want to hear that. I don't like that. And that's where many of his disciples are. Jesus said, does this offend you? And then he says, well, then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? In other words, what if this is actually true? That then you're literally offended over the truth. And then he says, the Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. That's where we get this idea. He's not speaking literally here when he's talking about his flesh and his blood. He's speaking metaphorically. It's a spiritual issue, not a physical issue. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. And then he says this, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. Here's what that means. It means people can only respond to God's initiative. We can't get to God on our own. God has to initiate. That's why he sent Jesus. So I sent Jesus to live a perfect life, die on the cross, come back to life. That was God initiating. The only thing we can do is respond to what God has already done. And the only proper response is complete and total trust in Jesus Christ. It's not simply trying to be sincere. It's not trying to be a good person. It's not trying to do a whole bunch of religious activity. It is 100% trust in Jesus. That's the line. And watch what happens Verse 66, it says, From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Here's my concern for the church in America in the 21st century. I wonder if the fact that Jesus said he was the only way, I wonder if that is, has now become offensive and obnoxious to many people who, who follow Jesus or say they follow Jesus to the point they're like, well, I don't like that version of it, so I'm going, to, I'm going to go to something that kind of feels a little more comfortable. But guys, Jesus didn't give us that option. This is the line that Jesus puts in the saying. He says, it's either me or it's nothing. Which leads me to three realities we have to accept about following Jesus. Genuinely following Jesus. Not a fairy tale, not a myth, not our version of following Jesus, but actually following Jesus. The first is this. A personal relationship with Jesus is the only way to be saved. It's the only way to be saved. 
See, following Jesus is not like going to Golden Corral or Cheesecake Factory where you have an almost endless supply of options. It's more like going to Chick-fil-A, which is kind of spiritual anyway, where you get chicken or nothing. Well, in the same way, guys, the option Jesus lays out for us is when it comes to really being saved, when it comes to eternal life, it's either him or nothing. So three questions, these won't be on the screen, but I want you guys to ask this. Three questions to ask this morning. When it comes to a relationship with Jesus, the first is, does it exist? Does it exist? The second, is it public? And the third, is it healthy? Let's walk through each one of those. Does it exist? Um, the way I can prove to you that I have a marriage is not by the fact that my wife sits in here and listens to me preach. By the way, she said um, I'm her favorite preacher, which is really sweet. <clears throat> Notice that she didn't say she thought I was the best preacher. Just her favorite. But I can go and find my marriage certificate and, and, and prove to you um, that, that we are, in fact, married. We have a relationship that exists do you have an actual, real relationship with Jesus? Does it actually exist? Have you ever asked Jesus to save you? Have you ever repented of your sin? Have you ever done what Paul says in Romans 10, 9, if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and confess Him as Lord, then you'll be saved? Have you ever actually asked Jesus to save you? <clears throat> or... Are you kind of living off the faith of your parents or living off the faith of your friends? Um, has there ever been a moment where you said, Jesus, my life is not my own. I give my life to you. Has that ever happened? Another way you may know it exists is, is, is you actually have a relationship with Jesus. You spend time with him. You converse with him. You, you, your heart is wrapped up in the things that his heart is wrapped up in. Does it exist? The second question, is it public? Um, I have a wedding ring. I wear it because I, I, I want people to know that I'm married. Like, if I didn't wear a wedding ring, I think that would be a little weird, to be honest. Because it would be like, are you married? Yeah, why don't you wear a wedding ring? Eh, I just kind of don't feel like it. That, to me, would create some questions about, well, you just don't feel like it. That to me would be strange because if I'm married, I want people to know about it. In the same way is your relationship with Jesus public, and the primary way that happens is baptism. And baptism, biblically speaking, after salvation, by immersion. What does that mean? It means that you have to give your life to Christ, and then the first step after giving your life to Christ is baptism. Why? Because if you get baptized before you give your life to Christ, like, like, like if I wore a wedding ring before I was married, like, that's just a ring. It don't mean nothing, right? But after marriage, it's like, oh, I'm married. Baptism is the same way, guys. Baptism does not save you, but baptism after salvation is just a public declaration of, hey, I belong to Jesus. And we do it that way because that's the way the Bible did it. That's the way they did it in Scripture. We just want to be as biblical as possible. So if you haven't been, and we do it by immersion, which just means dunking, again, that's the way they did it in the Bible. The word baptize actually literally means to immerse or to dunk you. So when we baptize here, we dunk you under the water, depending on how much of a sinner you are, depends on how long we hold you under. That's a joke. We don't do that. We don't do that. We don't do that. 
<clears throat> but we do dunk you. That, that's the way they did it in the Bible. And so if you've not been baptized by immersion after salvation, I can promise you baptism is your next step. And we're having baptism November 13th. You can sign up with the Connect card in the back of your seat. You can sign up online. Um, but baptism is your next step. Um, and I know that can be a difficult step, especially as you get older. But guys, listen. I was on a church staff until I realized I needed to get baptized because I hadn't been baptized by immersion after salvation. And boy, I had to swallow some pride to do that. But man, it has a beautiful effect of like actually moving you forward in your walk with Christ. And I can promise you this, until you take that step, Jesus will never take you further in your walk with Christ. Jesus will never take you to next until you obey what he tells you to do now. And for some of you, going public is your very next step. A personal relationship with Jesus is the only way to be saved. Does it exist? Is it public? The third question was, is it healthy? Say, what do you mean by healthy? Well, the way I know I have a healthy relationship with my wife is I I don't try to feed her peas. She hates garden peas. I love garden peas, especially when they come in the can with the little pearl mushrooms and the pearl onions and the tiny mushrooms. They're delicious, beautiful, glorious. How many of y'all love green peas like I do? A few people, a few enlightened people, right? Right? (laughs) Y'all can talk to my wife about that. But I love peas. She does not. And so I don't say, hey, we're having mushy peas for dinner. I don't do that. We compromise and we never have peas. Why? Because I care about my wife. I care about the things that she cares about. We have a healthy relationship. I don't spite her. But see, here's the sad thing. Um, and this is not just true. This is just true in my life sometimes, just to be honest. Sometimes we do things that Jesus doesn't want us to do. And we spite Jesus that way. You say, what do you mean? John 14, 23, Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples. And he says, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching." If a relationship with Jesus is healthy, what does it mean? It means that when he leads you to something and says, hey, do this, your answer is absolutely. No questions asked. I'm all in. So is your relationship relationship with Jesus, is it real? Is it public? Is it healthy? Is it healthy? Do you find yourself doing more and more of what Jesus says? And I will say this. If you say it's real, but man, it's not public, and it's not healthy, and you don't really have a desire to get it healthy, then I think you really ought to question whether it's not it's real or not. Second thing we have to acknowledge, second reality, a genuine relationship with Jesus accepts all of Jesus. What do I mean by it accepts all of Jesus? Let's take it back to marriage. Um, in order for me to be married, I have to accept that there are some things about my wife that are not like me. For instance, she's a night owl. I am not. I cannot think after 9 o'clock at night. It is a stretch for me. But at 9 o'clock at night, her brain kicks into a gear that I do not have. Which is why when we were first married, all of our disagreements came after 9 o'clock at night. Because my brain was off and she'd say something. I'd say something really dumb. And then all of a sudden, it's you know loggerheads, right? Some of y'all married, y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. But, but she has character traits that, that, that I don't have. My, like, I'm the type of person that I have to be early. Like, for me, 15 minutes early is on time. Anybody relate to that? Okay. You know, for the rest of us, some of us are like, they have a little more casual relationship with time. Like, 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 like and my wife is that way. She's kind of more of, well, we'll kind of get there when we get there. And, and, and it just, it just kind of drives me nuts. I have grown to the point to where I don't stomp around the house like a big bad wolf. You know, when she's, you know, in my estimation, running a little late. 
But there are things I have to accept about my wife in order to be married. And guys, the same thing is true when it comes to Jesus. A genuine relationship with Jesus accepts all of Jesus. That's back to this whole flesh and blood thing. Jesus is saying, you have to accept all of me. What do you mean by accept all of Jesus? The biggest tension is probably this. Most of us have no problem accepting the love of Jesus. Some of us do. Some of us have a problem of thinking, well, man, man, I've done way too many bad things. Could Jesus ever love me? The answer is yes, by the way. But generally speaking, most of us don't have a hard time accepting the love of God. What we often have a really hard time accepting, especially in the age of deconstruction, is the holiness of God. We have no problem with the idea that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. We have a hard time also believing, though, that every single person who rejects Jesus is going to spend eternity separated from God in hell because God has wrath against sin. We have a hard time with that, especially in today's culture. But the reality is this, a genuine relationship with Jesus, it accepts all of who Jesus is. Now, that does not mean you have to have perfect theology to become a Christian. Because at the end of the day, we're all a work in progress. We're not perfect people who love Jesus. We're imperfect people who are being changed by Jesus, right? So you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to have it all right. But if you're a work in progress, there's also going to be progress. Which means over time, as you, as you follow Jesus you're going to start to become more and more like him. Your belief system is going to start to conform to what God says, not what is culturally acceptable or culturally popular. So as you evaluate, do I have a relationship with Jesus? Do you accept all of Jesus? Or do you kind of, you like the parts of God that, 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 you, that, that, that are kind of palatable, that are kind of acceptable, that are kind of comfortable? And then kind of the parts that aren't, you're like, eh, uh, uh, uh. Guys, in order to really have a relationship with Christ, you've got to give all of Jesus a big bear hug. Every single part of him. And that's uncomfortable. That's one of the reasons I love when C.S. Lewis wrote um, the Chronicles of Narnia, particularly the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. And Aslan represents Jesus in that story. And... um. One of the kids in the story asks if Aslan is, is, is safe, and Mr. Beaver famously says, of course he's not safe. He's a lion. Well, Jesus in Scripture is called the Lion of Judah. Guys, he's not safe. But he still invites you to come and give him a big bear hug. Which can be a little frightening, right? But he loves you, and he cares about you, and you can trust him even the parts that make you really, really uncomfortable. And by the way, if you follow Jesus long enough, there will be things about him that make you really, really uncomfortable. But here's where that leads us, the third reality, it's this. Jesus isn't just the only way. There's no better way. Jesus isn't just the only way. There is no better way. In fact, I want you to watch this. Watch what, how the conversation concludes here. Verse 67, after so many people have left... Jesus turns to the twelve and he says, you do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. But then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One 
of God. Jesus isn't just the only way. What the the 12 knew was that, man, there's no better way. There's no better way. And the reason there's no better way, guys, is because every single other option puts the weight entirely on you. Every single other option puts the weight entirely on your performance and your actions and your works and your attempts to be good. And I don't know about you, but I don't want that weight. Because I fail and I fall every single day. And if we're being honest, every single one of us does. That's why Jesus is the best way because me being right with God, me being saved, me being kept safe from the enemy, being kept safe from the penalty for my sin is not based on me. I don't bear that weight because Jesus already bore it on the cross. He bore it on the cross when he died, when he bore the weight of the wrath of God for me. And because he paid for my sin, when when I repent of my sin and give my life to him, guess what? It no longer depends on me. It's not my job to keep myself saved. It's not my job to impress God. It's not my job to keep myself right with God. Jesus does that. So to who else who else are we supposed to go to? Self-effort is not the answer. No other religion is the answer because it all boils down to, 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 to trying to do it on your own. Jesus is the answer. That's why we like to say that there's nothing better than being with Jesus. There's nothing better than relationship with Jesus because he's the answer. He's the solution. Satisfaction is only forever found in him. Salvation is only found forever in Him. Being kept saved is only found forever in Him, not me.